our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Robert Louis Stevenson once said, You can give without loving, but you can never love without giving. Welcome to Christian Questions. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. You might say that ours is a long-term approach as we've been broadcasting the good news of the gospel for over 19 years. I'm Jonathan, and that long-term different perspective has its basis in three things. Godly principles, family values, honest dialogue, always done in a politically free zone. Rick, today is our 1001 broadcast, and we've talked the gospel with listeners on several talk radio stations throughout the eastern and central United States for many years. And we figured it was time to bring the good news to the whole world by way of podcasting, so here we are. We thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts via email, website, messages, Facebook, and our chat board, and so forth. So let's get started. First thing, Jonathan, it's a Tuesday, not a Monday. That's right. So we Different threw night. <laughs> everybody off here. Everybody gets thrown off. <laughs> and that is because of Christmas being on Monday. What's the subject? Well, Rick, our question is, what would Jesus have said to you? And our theme text is found in John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So it is the Christmas season. It's a time for happiness, for giving, receiving, and for appreciating. There was a time not so very long ago when the main focus of the Christmas season was the birth of Jesus as the world's Savior. We're past that now, thanks to our political correctness, and Jesus is very much an afterthought of the holidays now. Well, here today, Jesus is not an afterthought. He is not a divisive figure who offends people by his mere existence— No, not here, not now. Today, Jesus is recognized as the Savior of humanity, the centerpiece of God's plan, and the King of kings. As we honor the birth and life of Jesus today, we will do so by, in a little bit of a different way, we'll do so by highlighting some personal conversations he had with various people he encountered throughout his three-and-a-half-year ministry. In so doing, we're going to tell a story that has rarely been told. So, Jonathan, it's a little bit of a different approach today for our our honoring of the birth of Jesus. And uh, thank God for his son. Thank God for his son. You're right about that. And, folks, it's always our objective with each subject we choose to approach it in a biblical and very relevant practical way. We search out the original context of the scriptures that we cite. We try to find their true meaning and combine those scriptures with the pressing issues of our day to give you something to really think about. Don't forget, simply go to ChristianQuestions.com and click Listen Live for the live audio and chat room. Chat with fellow listeners around the world. All right, so that goes on as we do the broadcast. We'd love for you to do that. ChristianQuestions.com is where you find the chat room. So, Jonathan, we're going to be focusing on conversations as well as the events around the birth of Jesus. Our first conversation, then, each segment's going to begin with a conversation. Our first conversation is between Jesus and Nicodemus. 
Now, this all happens in John chapter 3. The end of John chapter 2, though, really is important to set the context for us. So let's go to John 2, 23 and 24. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. See, many believed in Jesus, according to this, but it says that Jesus did not entrust them himself to them. And you think, well, why wouldn't he do that? Well, because he knew that their belief was just a beginning. It, it needed time to grow and develop, and there was no maturity to which to entrust to. Their belief needed the test of time. We're going to compare that to now what happens in the very next verse of the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Okay, so this is where the conversation is going to begin. Let's stop there for a moment, and let's figure out a little bit about Nicodemus. So we're going to go to a commentary from uh, Albert Barnes here on Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, one of the Sanhedrin, or great council of the nation. He is twice mentioned after this as being friendly to our Savior, in the first instance as advocating his cause and defending him against the unjust suspicion of the Jews, and in the second instance as one who came to aid in embalming his body. So Nicodemus was a friend toward Jesus, but he was of the Sanhedrin, one of those who were of the group that was out to get him. So let's see what happens in this conversation. John chapter 3, let's go to verses 2 and 3. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, so Jesus, I mean, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, look, we know you're from God by what you say. When Jesus answers, verily, I say to you, he's saying, verily, amen. You're right about that. And then he says something to him that's unusual. Nicodemus displays faith, similar to those of the pre previous chapter, but here Jesus responds with truth. Why? Because Jesus saw Nicodemus' faith as one that was looking for nourishment, not just basking in the glory of Jesus, looking for nourishment, and he fed it. Jesus spoke a deep and previously unheard teaching to Nicodemus, who had a hard time understanding it. Jesus stayed with him, even though he had a hard time understanding, and told him so much more. So, Jonathan, let's go jump down to John chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, for a little bit more of what Jesus told this man, this faithful Jew, uh, to, to, to round out some of the truths that he, he expressed. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So John 3.16, the verse that everybody knows, was spoken to Nicodemus. God, for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten Son. He tells Nicodemus he's going to be crucified. He tells Nicodemus he's the savior of the world. 
Now, talk about trusting somebody with pretty deep and powerful truth. See, Jesus could read the heart, and he saw that Nicodemus, even though he was one of the Sanhedrin, even though he was of the Jewish ruling class, he saw Nicodemus as having a heart for God and a heart for truth. So there's great power in this short conversation because Jesus reveals powerful, strong, deep things to this man. And it's interesting, Jonathan, he's not the, one of the disciples or one of the apostles. He's not. But he was told these things of great depth and meaning. So let's kind of draw a conclusion from a quick look at this conversation. Jesus trusted and told an educated and sincere Jewish ruler of his personal mission and how this mission would be carried out by his followers. No one else knew this. We don't have any other recordings in the New Testament from Jesus' own words about the spirit, about the you know, spirit begettle and so forth. So Nicodemus was truly privileged. So he sees this sincere and educated man. So the question that we have to ask here at this point as we're just getting started is maybe you, whoever you are listening, come from the place of a Nicodemus. Maybe you have strong and respectable, respectable and religious background. Maybe you've had integrity, knowledge, and the kind of background that people can look up to. The question here is, are you in position? Would Jesus have spoken to you in the same way if you come from the same kind of background? With that in mind, let's go to the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus was a significant point in history, for it began the outward revealing of an eternal plan of hope that had up to this point been veiled. With, now with Nicodemus in mind, let's look at the setting up, setting up of Jesus' birth and ask ourselves, am I the person Jesus would talk to and have faith in? Am I open to receiving the blessings of knowledge of the gospel? So to begin to illustrate this, we're going to go take, a, take a, a walk down the skit guys lane, our friends the skit guys, and just listen to what they call what, the, their, what child is this anthem. And the question is, would I have been? Would I have been the one? Would I have recognized? So let's listen to part one of what child is this anthem by the skit guys. I've always wondered if I'd been at the stable that night. Would I have seen a king or just a baby? If I'd stood there with the shepherds listening to stories about choirs of angels, would I have asked, what child is this? Or would I have known that he someday be the shepherd of all? If I'd watched wise men bring valuable gifts and kneel down under the guard of heavenly wonders, would I have understood that he was the one in whom I'd find all wisdom and that he was the greatest gift of all. Just as that baby was held by his mother. He would hold me. He would hold me with his amazing grace. And his adoption by his father Joseph would be a picture of my adoption into God's family. Who could comprehend that this baby who was defenseless, swaddled, and held, would someday be the one holding me in his hand? Would I have been paying attention enough? It was such a powerful question as we talk about, about the conversations of Jesus. So, Jonathan, let's set some context. Way back, 
God tested Abraham. He tested his faith and told him to sacrifice that promised child. Abraham was willing and God accepted that willingness as a sign of true and deep faith. Here is what God said to Abraham back then in Genesis 22. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. See what this is? This is ancient hope. The hope of blessing, the hope of posterity, and the hope of redemption through Abraham and his own family. When you have a plan of hope, especially a plan of eternal hope, and when the plan includes all of the human family, it not only takes time to develop, it also, Rick, by definition, requires complex logistical events to be put into place. It really does. And one of the amazing complexities was the preparation of the one who would be the seed of Abraham. This seed, this man, would need to be perfect as Adam was, yet born of a woman. He would need to be a man, to live the life of an ordinary, that an ordinary man lives, yet be willing to sacrifice all of his own will and desire to fulfill the law of Moses. He would need to be graced with the very power of God above, and yet be a humble and obedient son who was willing to be rejected and to die. So God, the author of hope, let us again know through prophecy who would take on this great challenge. We read in Isaiah chapter 6. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go, and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So you see it in, in Isaiah. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is, how do we know that this prophecy was about Jesus and not just some proclamation by the prophet Isaiah? Well, we know the answer to that because Jesus himself told us by quoting this prophecy when explaining why he taught in parables. So, Jonathan, wrap up this section for us. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus was a conversation with an educated, wise, and respected Jewish leader. Jesus saw his heart and showed him that true salvation had arrived, and he would be witness to it. Are we wise and ed educated in our own little corner of the world? Is Jesus able to show us those same kinds of transformational truths? Would we listen? Would we appreciate the depth of the preparation that God went through to put all of this in place? Let's go back to the Skit Guys Part 2 of What Child Is This Anthem. I didn't witness a star moving across the sky. There scores of angels proclaiming his birth. But somehow in the middle of my ordinary world, this extraordinary baby's birth found a place in my worn down, beat up heart. So like all those people who saw him. He's the one I've been waiting for. To repair me. Redeem me. Love me. Forgive me. Comfort me. Help me. Die for me. 
raised me to life. So what child is this? He's the one who comes to save me. He's the one who comes to save me. To save me. To save me. He's the one who comes to save me. That's right. He's the one who comes to save us. And how blessed and privileged we are to be able to witness this. And again, as we are looking at the birth of Jesus, we're doing it in a very different way this time around. We're looking at it through the eyes of the conversations that Jesus had with five very specific people. Uh, The first in this first segment was that of Nicodemus, the Jewish ruler who had a heart for God and who was really clearly focused on doing the will of God. And again, I just have to wonder if I would have been as receptive as Nicodemus was. That is a hard question to ask. Jesus' previous conversation was with one who was deeply respected. Is Jesus setting up a pattern? We're podcasting live every Monday night from 8 to 9.30. You can talk to us direct through our chat at ChristianQuestions.com. We also welcome your comments or questions any day of the week. Just hit the Contact Us button. We're now out of the starting gate. Let's pick up the pace for tonight's topic. One of the truly magnificent things about Jesus was the level at which he lived his human life. As we shall see, he constantly looked beyond the traditions and opinions of men and always addressed people where they lived. He addressed them in their hearts. Our next conversation is pretty much the polar opposite of the last one. Our second conversation is between Jesus and a woman from Samaria by a well. We're going to begin in John chapter 4 with verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Okay, let's stop right there for a minute, and again, let's put some things in context. A woman from Samaria. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, who were the Samaritans? So, so John, uh, Jonathan, we're going to go to, uh, to trap a commentary to get some background on who the Samaritans were, and then we're going to do a little bit of from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown as well. Josephus writeth that a Samaria was a sanctuary opened by Sambalat for all renegade Jews. The Jews, therefore, hated the presence, the fire, the fashion, the books of Samaritan. Neither was there any hatred lost on the Samaritan's part. For if he had been touched, a Jew, he would have to thrown himself into the next water, clothes and all, both of them equally sick of a do not touch me. <laughs> so, so there was a, a dramatic emotional response between the two cultures, and it wasn't a good response. A couple, couple of lines from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. It is this national antipathy that gives a point to the parable of the Good Samaritan and the thankfulness of the Samaritan leper. So, right, remember when the, 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 the lepers, you know, all went away, but the one leper came back, you know. So you get a sense that these were polar opposites in, in culture. They had very basic, they had a basic similar belief in, in God and in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but very, very different applications of those beliefs. So Samaritans and Jews didn't get along, didn't talk much to each other. So here they are at the well. This woman of Samaria comes to the well to draw water. Let's go back to John chapter 4 and see what Jesus does. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, 
how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So, first of all, the fact that Jesus even speaks to her would have taken her by surprise. And, uh, you know, she said, well, you know, why, why are you asking me for a drink? I'm a Samaritan. You know that. Why are you even talking to me? So this is a shock. But, you know, Jesus didn't care about what social mores were. He didn't care what other people thought. He could see people's hearts. And his whole life was built around, bent around, reaching those hearts and touching them. So he says to her, look, if you just would say, give me a drink, I can give you something so much better than anything you can imagine. But the mere fact of this conversation sets Jesus way apart. He has now got her imagination here. What happens? She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not thirst nor come at all the way here to draw. So the woman is thinking in very practical, physical terms. She hears what Jesus says, and he's basically saying, you know, I'm giving you a lifetime warranty on water supply. You're never going to run out if you, go, if you come my way and listen to what I'm saying. And she's thinking physical water. And she's probably about two miles from this well. So you think about that and how careful they were with water. You have to walk two miles, fill up your water pot, then walk two miles back. And she's thinking, boy, could I save some time and energy if I get this water. Sir, please give me this water you're talking about. So she's not yet ready to see it in a, in a bigger way. Jesus appreciates where she is and just goes a little further with her. He proceeds to tell her, we're going to have to skip some parts, about herself and about truth. And he tells her things that just totally shock her, including the fact that she is not living in a good situation. She's living in a very sinful circumstance. But he goes on and he preaches to her gospel truth. Let's go to John 4, 23 to 26. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He tells her he's the Messiah. So the woman goes back to the city, leaving her water pot behind and shouts out that she has seen the Messiah. And as a result, many Samaritans come back to see him and they believe because they believed her. And Jesus then spends two days with them. See, Jesus could read the heart and he saw humility in this woman whose life was totally messed up, both in her personal morals as well as her spiritual association. Jesus didn't stop at that. He saw through that and touched her heart. What's our conversation conclusion here, Jonathan? 
Jesus gave this sinful and out of favor woman a rare and exciting view of God's plan, and he let her know that her present circumstance did not have to equal her future opportunity. Okay. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, so folks, do some of you come from a background that's messed up like that Samaritan woman? Outcast, wrong understanding, bad life decisions, sinful living? If your heart is right, Jesus can and will talk to you in spite of those things. Just like the Samaritan woman, just like the Samaritan woman, those who would be part of bringing this plan to God, of God to fruition would be tested for they would have had to have been of the most faithful sort. It came upon the midnight clear That glorious song of old From angels bending near the earth To touch their harps of gold Still through the cloven skies They come with peaceful wings unfurled And still their heavenly music floats O'er all the weary world Peace on the earth Goodwill to men From heaven's all-gracious King a good start. We're going to briefly focus on Mary and how her faith must have been so firmly grounded and true. We begin with Luke chapter 1. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel Gabriel is now appearing for the second time, six months after Elizabeth had conceived. Mary was young and only engaged. His greeting was one of great favor, yet Mary's reaction was confused and fearful. The angel continued, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. 
he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. There was an obvious immediacy with all of this, for the angel could not be speaking of some future son of Joseph. So the question that needed answering above all else had to be asked, for faith could perceive of these other things. But this one question, this one question could not be fathomed. How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel Gabriel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she, who was called barren, is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. For Mary, Gabriel's last words must have rung true in the deepest recesses of her very young heart, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So we see what happened with Mary and the miracle that took place. But what about Joseph? What about his reaction and his responsibility? We go to Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, because they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. For Joseph, this would have been a completely unexpected and actually horrifying dilemma. What should he do? He could have sent Mary away in public shame, but he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her. So he determined to send her away privately. This was an extraordinarily, extraordinary and life-changing decision that had, to be, that had been laid before him. So he decided that he would sleep on it, to be sure. As he slept, an angel of the Lord came to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Well, this certainly was an explanation in harmony with how Mary had tried to explain her dilemma. The angel continued. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Joseph would have awakened with a start and with profound thoughtfulness. Mary's explanation was not some wild excuse. Rather, it was a direct fulfillment of the prophecy of the Messiah. Mary, his espoused, was carrying the Savior of all, and he, Joseph, would have the opportunity and privilege to raise this Savior to manhood. Glory to God in the highest. So Jesus' conversation with a Samaritan woman was a conversation with a messed up but seeking individual. It was about living water and the coming of Messiah. Little did she know of the depth of faith and preparation 
that had to have happened to make the Messiah's coming possible. Are we at all like that messed up but seeking woman, wanting more but not knowing how to find it? Are we up for some of that living water? You know, and the thing that we have to look at with this whole part of the story is not only the question, are we up for some of that living water, but can we really appreciate the depth of the testing that those surrounding Jesus' birth had to go through? Just looking at Mary and Joseph here gives us a real sense that this was something so big, so difficult, and so taxing that they had to be of exactly the right kind of character, humble before God. Joseph was a little bit of an older man. Mary was a very young woman. God chose absolutely the right people. So the question we ask ourselves is, are we in line to appreciate the faith of Mary and Joseph? What about you? Are you thinking and focusing on such things? So Jonathan, in our first two examples of conversations, what we've seen is Nicodemus, and in comparison to Nicodemus, we saw the early preparations that God put in place, and then we saw the Samaritan woman who was really messed up but had great faith, and Jesus found it, and we looked at that in comparison to the faith and testing of Joseph and Mary, and what we see here is some pretty amazing things happening. What we're talking about here is polar opposites, yet both sides, the chosen and outcast, we're blessed. It is remarkable how true that is. From wise and respected to a sinful woman of an outcast people. Who does Jesus speak with next? Before we turn the page, we wanted to tell you about CQ Rewind. It's a free weekly service provided by our great team of contributors who help the guys prepare for each episode. It's an in-depth look at their research, scripture, and much more, showing you the map of Rick and Jonathan's content journey. Now let's continue finding out the better answers as we ask the better questions. Our next stop on our journey through some of the personal conversations of Jesus brings us to another respected man, albeit he was an outsider. 
It is with this conversation that the true pattern of Jesus' conversations will begin to emerge, and that pattern exemplifies his whole reason for presenting himself as a ransom for all. So now as we go to this third conversation, we're going to find that it's between Jesus and a centurion, a Roman centurion. Now this might be considered an odd conversation because Jesus did not talk directly to the centurion, but to his representatives instead. The Matthew 8, 5-13 account reports the centurion as going himself and being face-to-face with Jesus, but in Luke, the account we're going to be reading from, shows us that he had representatives go in his place. And what this shows us is the absolute authority of a mouthpiece being sent as a representative. So let's take a look, Jonathan. Let's go for our third conversation to this conversation between, between Jesus and this Roman centurion in Luke chapter 7. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion's slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. Okay, so the centurion was keenly aware of Jewish activities, had great trust with the Jewish elders, and actually sent the Jewish elders of the city to go meet Jesus and to make the request on his behalf. Rick, uh, that's odd. Remember, the centurion was not there. He sent others as representatives. Right. He didn't really talk to Jesus. Right. He didn't really talk to Jesus, but his representatives did. And what we will see is Jesus treats his representatives exactly as he would treat him if he, as if he was there himself. And again, that's a testament to the power and to the perception of Jesus looking at and dealing with people. So you're right. He's talking to Jewish representatives. And, you know, you think about it, Jonathan. In our world today, we'd go marching right up to Jesus and say, hey, listen, I need a favor. You know, because we've, we've lost all sense and semblance of true humility. Why didn't the centurion do that? Well, further on in Luke 7, it begins to explain it to us. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you, ha- you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, The centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. That's a powerful, powerful story here. So Jesus starts on his way to the man's house, and as he's on his way, the centurion sends friends out. So he's got people watching this whole thing happening, and he sends them to say to Jesus, look, don't even come under my roof. His acknowledgement of his unworthiness is a clear view into this man's heart, this Roman citizen's heart. He's in the Roman army, and he's got this incredible, humble heart and character. But there's much more here. You know, he says, don't come under my roof. And then he has his friends explain to Jesus why he doesn't need to come under his roof. This is amazing stuff. What's next? For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, 
and he does it. See, the amazing thing is this centurion was a man who had and understood power and authority. He knew. He knew what power and authority could do in life, and he knew how to wield power and authority. He knew what it was like to have have authority over others, over the movements of things happening in, in his life because he was granted that. And he also knew that the power that Jesus handled was much greater than any power he, this Roman soldier, could handle. And I'll tell you, that's shocking that a Roman soldier could acknowledge the great power of Jesus. And he was absolutely subservient to the power of Jesus. Now remember, Jonathan, he's not even feeling worthy. This Roman, proud Roman soldier is not worthy to go before Jesus. And Jesus treats his representatives as though he's speaking directly to him. So what is Jesus' reaction to this? Now, <clears throat> now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And now the Matthew account adds this next line. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. So Jesus not only was willing to go to the home of this Roman centurion to heal his servant, he is willing to not go to the home of the Roman centurion because of his humility, because of the centurion's humility, and he heals the servant anyway. And he says to the people around him, I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel. So Jesus saw this outsider. And, and remember, Jonathan, at that point in time, outsiders were not in line for the goodness of the gospel, were they? No, they were not. Not even remotely close, but Jesus gives it to him. Just a word, and it was done. This conversation between two men who wielded great power shows us the power of faith and character. Not one of the chosen people of Israel had displayed such bold faith and bold humility before Jesus. Not one. So what's the conversation conclusion here? Well, Rick, Jesus hears and responds to the heart of this Roman centurion without even seeing his face. Jesus uniquely blesses this outsider as his desire is for Israel. And the centurion's only request is for the life of another. So folks, we have to ask you, are you a modern-day centurion? Do you come from a position in the world of power and respect and authority, high in rank perhaps, disciplined, successful? But do you have the humility of heart? Would you be able and willing and wanting to talk to Jesus?
Now we come to the birth of Jesus. We've already seen glimpses of all of the work done to prepare for this particular event. God's plan of hope began ages before this moment, and he revealed pieces of it to us through the many prophecies of the Old Testament. God's preparations continued through the drafting of the right people, of the right character, to be the supporting cast for Jesus the Messiah, and to surround this event. We now pause to meditate on the birth that would change everything. We read from Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. With all that God went through to get ready for this moment, it is striking that Jesus would be born in such a common and humble way. There were no special provisions, no special exemptions, no special circumstances. There was no presidential suite, none of that kind of thing. They were required to do what everyone else did, to travel where everyone else traveled, and to pay what everyone else paid. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. To be born in a stable and to be laid in a manger among the animals was the most fitting of places for the Lord of men to enter the world. After all, Jesus would live these humble beginnings each and every day for 33 and a half years, for it was through this humility that he would be able to pay the ransom price. It was through this humility that God's plan for redemption would flourish.
there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be the sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. The fulfillment of prophecy. In this case, it required an angelic announcement to the most humble audience of shepherds. Fitting. The baby Jesus would grow to assume the throne of David once a shepherd himself. Imagine the fear, the thrill, and the hope instilled in those shepherds. In the still of the night, under the vast expanse of the starlit heavens, comes this glowing message, full of light, full of prophecy, fulfilled and full of expectation. And then, and then it was full of music, the thundering chorus of angelic voices singing praise. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, good will toward men. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. See, humility does not preclude heavenly celebration. No, no, no. Humility provokes he heavenly celebration. And it was in this manner, this humble manner, that Jesus, our Lord, was born. So Jesus' conversation with the centurion aptly enhances the lessons of Jesus' birth. Just as Jesus came into this world, 
with no human generated fanfare, he also healed the servant of a foreigner with the subtlety of a word. Jesus was born to redeem the world, and this centurion and his servant were not only included, they received a foretaste of the joy that redemption brings. So thus far, Jesus' own humble beginnings reflect all of those he blessed in conversation. It is such a simple formula. The purpose and power of Jesus' life is shining through. To whom did he go when he needed rest? There's a lot of talk program topics out there. If you're burnt out on Capitol Hill and Trump, don't worry, we never go there. But if you're looking for unique ways to look at the Bible, we'll make you think about how today's world ties into Scripture like you've never thought about before. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now. Jesus was a man, and while we often imagine him as an, un, as an unending flow of energy and godly righteousness, he did get tired. He did need time away to think and to pray. Jesus needed a safe haven of, and a peaceful place of caring friends. Such were Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They provided him a place to rest. And this will be where our next conversation drops in on Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And we're going to go to Barclay to get a little background on this relationship. It is one of the most precious things in the world to have a house and a home into which one can go at any time and find rest and understanding and peace and love. This was doubly true for Jesus, for he had no home of his own. He had nowhere to lay his head. In the home at Bethany, he had just such a place. There were three people who loved him, and there he could find rest from the tension of life. You know, Jonathan, while there are not a lot of conversations recorded between Jesus and his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the sensitive caring between them became evident when Lazarus became sick. Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus about his illness which means they actually knew where Jesus would have been. Jesus comes to them, but only after his dear friend Lazarus had died, only after he put off coming to him to allow his dear friend Lazarus to die. So Jesus arrives on the scene, and first there's a conversation with Martha. We'll be dropping in on John 11. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Martha therefore went to him. Martha then said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You know, Jonathan, there, there's a lot of conversation sometimes about Mary and Martha, you know, and Mary was told to have, have taken the better place to sit at Jesus' feet and learn, and Martha, they say, was busy about all these other things. But look at the faith that Martha displays in this conversation. Lord, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now, though, I know whatever you ask God, he'll give you. That's faith. That's, that's, hu- that's huge. It's powerful, deep internal faith. And Jesus says, look, your brother will rise again. And she said, and she goes right to the doctrine of Jesus. Of course, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So as busy as she was, she had incredible faith. Let's continue. Jesus said, 
I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister. And it's interesting again, Jesus is sort of testing her faith, and her response is, Yes, Lord, I have believed. It's not like, Okay, I'm believing it now because you're in front of me. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God who comes into the world. I believe you're the Messiah. There is power in the faith of Martha. She nails down the purpose of Jesus and reaffirms her faith in him. She has been given peace by this conversation with Jesus in the face of the tragedy of her brother's death. So now Mary is going to come onto the scene, and Jesus is going to respond to Mary without a word. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So Mary comes to Jesus, and she falls at his feet. And the interesting thing about Mary is whenever you see Mary in Scripture, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's where she is most comfortable, in that, in that place of humility. And she says, you know, if you were here, my brother would not have died. And then she cries. And Jesus doesn't say a word to her, but he cries as well. So his answer to her is in his own tears. He feels her pain, and he joins her pain. See, Martha was much more logical and, and, and needed to be dealt with in that way. Mary felt it, and Jesus responded to her in like fashion. And now, he had said, where have you laid him? Now Jesus again talks to Martha, and then is going to pray. Let's go on with the scriptures. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. So he talks to Martha again. She's being practical, and then she gets out of his way because she knows he's about his father's business. And he prays out loud for the purpose of letting the people around him know the power I'm going to show you does not come from me. It comes from God above. I simply am privileged to let that power flow through me. Now the next conversation is Jesus talking to Lazarus. And it's a very short conversation. He speaks three words. Go ahead. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrapping, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So Jesus' three-word conversation with Lazarus is simply to call him forth from the dead. But the most important words Jesus spoke here 
were unbind him and let him go. Because that's what resurrection is going to mean. He raised Lazarus from the dead, but to unbind him and let him go is the symbol of what true resurrection will mean later. So Jonathan, let's, let's wrap up. What's the conversation conclusion here? Jesus had addressed Martha, Mary, the mourners, and Lazarus. In each and every case, he fulfilled exactly what they needed by his words, prayer, or actions. He showed them hope for life. This is how Jesus treated those who were special to him. So the question is, maybe are you a faithful and trusted friend? Are you reliable, understanding, serving, not demanding, comfortable? Jesus has a special place for you if that's the case. Let's go back to the shepherds whose privilege it was to be told of Jesus' birth. continue going back to the shepherds. Luke chapter 2. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began to say to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. These shepherds knew that they were part of something much bigger than they had ever conceived to be possible. They acted in faith, and they acted right away, and they found Mary and Joseph. The baby lay quietly in a manger. Think of it 
tranquility and peace of the moment as they cast their eyes on their future Savior. This was Jesus, the one who would save the world. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. They now took this miracle and published it among the people. These were just shepherds, but they were emboldened to speak out about the stunning event and the miraculous announcement that they had been a part of. What a lesson for us. Are we emboldened to speak out about the good news of Christ? For we also have been invited to be a part of its message. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told to them. For Mary, this was a time of awestruck wonder. For the set shepherds, it was a time of pure joy. And for us, for us, this is a time of unfettered praise and hope. We go to Isaiah chapter 9. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The big picture of Jesus' purpose here becomes very specific. Isaiah proclaims that there will be one upon whom all our world order will rest. Isaiah continues, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Think of it, no end of peace. Isn't that the hope for life that everyone is wishing for, waiting for, and working for? Doesn't that statement fulfill the deepest hopes and the deepest dreams of all of humanity? Isaiah continues, On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Hope. That's what all of this is truly about. It's hope. This hope has a government, and the foundation of that government is justice and righteousness. But it's not just any justice and righteousness. No, no, no. This is God's justice, God's righteousness, through the sacrifice, through the life of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's why we spend our time talking about this event and the magnitude of the event and the conversations that we have been looking at today.
you know, sometimes you just got to let the music do the talking. Sometimes you just have to sit back and absorb the beauty of the moment when you realize all of the events and all of the things that were happening here that were put in place uh, by the overruling of God to bring Jesus into the world in such a, a, a simple and yet very, very dramatic way. And when we get to the, go back to those conversations, there is a clear pattern. The most humble were given the greatest blessing. That always seems to be the case. Now we have come to our final conversation. Who was it with? And why was it so important? If we asked Rick, Jonathan, and the CQ contribution team to answer our topical questions in five minutes or less, rather than in several chapters over 90 minutes, they'd probably get a little stressed out. Plus, they love painting that bigger picture by looking at several real-world media perspectives, historical facts, and scripture. That's why some answers may come quickly. But we love taking a look at the bigger questions that aren't so easy. You know, in our conversations, we have purposely avoided Jesus' conversations with the apostles and the Pharisees, as those conversations are well-known and often quoted. For our last conversation, we're going to fast-forward to the morning of Jesus' resurrection and highlight the few powerful words that Jesus exchanged with Mary Magdalene. And the interesting thing here is there's not a lot written about Mary, but she seems to show up a lot. Let's take a look at the devotion of Mary just by focusing on where she had been. You can learn a lot from, about her life in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod Stewart, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to the support out of their private means. You know, contrary to the many writings that falsely speak of Mary Magdalene as a former prostitute, she, she was not. She was, in fact, a very respectable woman. She was healed by Jesus, as shown in Luke chapter 8. She helped him during his ministry, as shown by Luke chapter 8, out of her own private means. She was there at the cross. She was there to prepare for his burial, and she was there at the tomb. She was one of those disciples that always showed up. She was always seemed to be the first there and the last to leave. She was so dedicated to Jesus. And we're going to focus on a very brief conversation that the risen Jesus will have with Mary at, on this day of his resurrection. So we're going from the birth of Jesus, and we're going to go fast-forwarding to the resurrection of Jesus in John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, and she saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So now, Mary, up to this point, had been with the other women. They went back to tell the disciples, but she stayed around. 
Once the disciples left, she alone lingered at the tomb, and as a result would be blessed with another angelic appearance. So the disciples came, and they left. The other women were with there earlier. They left. So now it's just Mary. We go back to John chapter 20, picking up with verse 10. So the disciples went away again to their own homes, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been laying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, here she is talking to angels, and they ask her, Why is she so upset? And they said, Because I don't know where they put his body. Just, I don't know where it is. I mean, she is overwrought with the, with the, with the, the fear that someone is disrespecting the body of Jesus. Her heart was so troubled that Jesus himself would see fit to calm her. Now notice, Jesus had not yet appeared to anyone, not to any human being. And here's what happens next. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So Jesus calls her and says, you know, why are you weeping? And she gives him her troubles, and all he says is her name. And she instantly knows it's Jesus. And, and Jonathan, I imagine that she just grabs at his ankles and his feet and is holding him tightly. And, and you know... The compassion of Jesus with this woman whom he healed and who was there all the time. I, in my imagination, I, I picture him as she's holding onto his legs, just stooping down and gently, gently touching her chin and lifting it so she can look at him. And he says to her, please, don't cling to me now because I've not yet ascended to the Father, but you have a job to do. Go to my brother and tell them that I'm going to ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary is the first vessel of the gospel of the risen Jesus Christ. She has to bring the good news to the other disciples. What an amazing privilege this woman had. What is our conversation conclusion? Jesus spoke to the brokenhearted Mary with words of deep compassion and understanding, and he also spoke to her with his gentle managing of her touch. So we want to ask you folks, are you perhaps, do you come from the background of a Mary Magdalene, previously wounded, having lost stature and standing, and now having been renewed, having been healed, thankful and determined, determined for others to be given what you have been given? As Jesus brought Mary Magdalene from a point of being healed in the spirit to going about her Lord's business by going to encourage his brethren, we see that Jesus' whole purpose was about giving and then teaching those whom he gave how to give as well. This 
is what his kingdom will be all about. Let's get some perspective. Here is the eternal reason for the season. We go to Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, for perspective. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. more perspective, there was an issue of justice that needed satisfying. Jesus came to satisfy it. We read in 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. more perspective. The result of Jesus satisfying justice is a pathway to perfection for all and heaven for his followers. The people will be healed and perfected. Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as in heart and the tongue of the dumb sing. You know, the land will be healed and perfected. We continue in Isaiah 35. For in the wilderness shall waters break out in streams in the desert, and the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of dragons, where each lay, shall be grass with reeds and rushes. The process by which people live will be healed and perfected. Continuing in Isaiah 35. And a highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men. No fools shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, 
and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So has this Christmas meditation brought you closer to being one of those with whom Jesus would talk? Folks, as we take a look at this, so what did you get for Christmas? Hopefully you've received in our, 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 in our giving the real story about the real birth of the real Savior and the real hope that he stands for. Hopefully we can see more clearly how Jesus spent time with real people who had real issues and who were in many cases outside of the realm of those who would be considered ripe for the gospel. So let's review those precious conversations with Jesus that we talked about one last time. Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, a man who was a member of a class who saw Jesus' destruction and shared deep truths with him about the gospel call. Are you a Nicodemus? Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman, one who was shunned by the Jewish community, yet Jesus shared deep truth about his purpose and his identity. Are you like that Samaritan woman? Jesus spoke to a centurion. 
a Roman soldier who at that time had no right to the gospel, yet Jesus gave him the healing of the gospel for his beloved servant. Are you a modern-day centurion? Jesus spoke to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. These were his close friends, and he encouraged their faith and built their hope, and he also gave them his most dramatic miracle. Are you a trusted, faithful friend? And finally, Jesus spoke to Mary Magdalene, a woman who had been broken of spirit and possessed by demons. She was such a faithful and thankful follower that she had the historic privilege of being the first human being to see the risen Jesus and the first human being to be given the gospel work from the risen Jesus. Are you a healed Mary Magdalene? So, the bottom line here, folks, is Jesus talked to everyone. He shared truth with anyone, with faith and love in their hearts. And the five conversations presented here today are meant to inspire you to a greater appreciation of Jesus and his mission as the Son of God coming to this earth to pay a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. And as we wrap up, folks, please remember to contact us. Let us know what you thought of today's podcast via your Christian Questions app or at ChristianQuestions.com. Jonathan and Rick in Christian Questions, be a person who will hear when Jesus speaks. Merry, Merry Christmas to you all, and until next week, think about it.